Well, this last week, I was playing Would You Rather with my son, my 10-year-old boy. Familiar with that game? Asked a couple of questions. Sometimes they're just silly questions, like, would you rather have three arms or three legs? You know, something silly like that. And I, I tend to take those very seriously. Well, three, three legs, at least when you're sitting under a table, people wouldn't notice. Well, you know, three-legged pants would be more expensive than three-legged, three-armed shirts. And, you know, he, he just... He just thinks about how many more balls he could juggle or something fun like that. We ran into a fun question in our time of playing that game this last week, and I wanted to offer it up to you this morning. And here it is. Would you rather be an extra in a really good movie or have a main part in a really bad movie? That's the question. Would you rather be an extra, just a minimal, tiny little, oh, there I am, the back of my head, part in a really good, well-known movie or a main part in a really bad movie? Now, we have the app on our phone where we play Would You Rather, so when we select our answer, it actually shows a percentage of the thousands of users to show you a bit of a survey of what everyone else said about that. And so in the answer to that one, I found quite, quite interesting. 71% of people would rather be an extra in a good movie than a main part in a bad movie. And some of you are like, well, that's the right answer. You know, you're type A's like that, right? Now, I don't want to put too much stock in random surveys from a kind of silly game app. But I couldn't help but think about that quite a bit. <clears throat> Why is it that so many people, so many more people, would want to be a little part in a big movie rather than a big part in a little movie. And I think that the reason is because we inherently, as people, want to be a part of something significant. We want to be on the winning team. We want to be a part of something that is meaningful. In fact, it's not uncommon to find that people switch from one career to another, one job to another, even are willing to move all the way across the country, go back to school, start over again with their their training in order to make a jump to something different because they want to be a part of something meaningful. We want to be a part of something significant. If you're a believer, then you are already a part of the most significant story that has ever been told. In fact, you have been charged with the greatest mission in the history of the world. You're already on the winning team. And not only that, you've been given a role. You're not a bench warmer. You've been assigned a task. And no matter how insignificant that task may seem to you on occasion, the work is monumental. It's extraordinary. And it's eternal in its value. This morning, we're going to be looking at the final parts of the story of Jesus speaking with the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And we're going to see this woman playing this tiny little, seemingly insignificant role, and just what exactly that turns into. If you have your Bibles with you, please go to John chapter 4. We're in the last paragraph of this story. We've been in here for weeks. I'm going to read through verses 39 to 45 out loud. I'm going to pray, and then we'll go back through. I just want to show you a few things. And at the end, I want to, I want to break down uh, a handful of observations and 
applications that I, I think and hope will be helpful for you. So let's go ahead and read verses 39 through 45. I'll pray, and then we'll, we'll dive back in and unpack. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. Let's pray. Lord, we ask once again for you to show us truth, not just words that we read on a page that we could read in any other setting, in any other day, in any other time, but God, Holy Spirit-inspired words that we read from the text here. And Father, I have a difficult task task as a preacher to overcome obstacles and distractions and, and make points out of these important texts, but Lord, not so difficult, because I do trust that you are with us. Even when two or three are gathered, Lord, I know that you are. And so, God, I pray that today you would just send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and warm our hearts and help us just to see the truths that are here. We may gain great advantage from these things. Be with us, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Going back to verse 39 at the beginning here. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Now, just in case you hadn't been with us for the weeks that we had been making our way through this story, Jesus was on a trip back from Jerusalem up north to the region of Galilee, where his home was and most of his ministry was, and he was making his way through Samaria. And he stops at a town, and he's seated at a well while his disciples go in to get some food. Now, while he's seated at the well, a woman of the town comes out to meet him, and we find out through the course of the story, she's probably a bit of an outcast. She's been known to be a sinful woman. She's been with lots of different men, and she's coming in the heat of the day rather than to come at the time when most of the other women would gather there. And so they're alone talking. This, of course, is a bit of a scandal that Jesus, this rabbi, this Jewish rabbi, would be speaking with not only a woman, but a woman of ill repute, and not only a woman of ill repute, but also a woman who's a part of a society, the Samaritans, a culture, that were religious enemies, and in sometimes in their history, physical, literal enemies of the Jews. And yet he initiates a conversation and he speaks with her and he shares with her glorious truth. Not only does he, does he offer eternal life to her, but even she's, she's confused about it, he makes it clear he knows all about her life and he's still offering this to her. Yet the conclusion of their conversation tells her straight up that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ, the one that all the people have been waiting for. She goes running into town, and back in verse 29, which we've read in past weeks, I didn't read today, she says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She says this in front of the Samaritans, people in the village, her townsfolk, And unlike so many different towns of Jews, of Israelites, they received Jesus. They heard her testimony, and they believed. Sychar, that's the name of the city, they believed in Jesus, while Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, did not. 
And it didn't just say a couple people, but many, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This reminds me of what we read in John chapter 1. I want to read for you back at the intro to this, this gospel. John writes this, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So, so think about that. John, the author here, tells us right on the onset, the Jews largely reject Jesus, but there will be some. And there will be others who do receive, who do believe in his name. And they, it is they who will become the children of God. I've shared with you before that the first, especially around 10 chapters of the book of John, highlight the Jewish rejection of Jesus. Jesus is a Jewish man, born and raised in a Jewish household, down a deep ancestry of Jewish people. He's even in the line of King David, the greatest of all the Jews. And yet, his people turned against him. Of course, some receive him. John the Baptist, we've already seen. He's a Jew. He receives Jesus. The disciples were all Jewish. They received Jesus. Galilee, by the time we get to the end of these couple paragraphs, we'll see. The Galileans seem to receive Jesus. They're Jewish. So some Jews did. But largely, John highlights how many Israelites, Jewish people, reject Jesus and others instead believe. And why did they believe in this case? Because of the woman's testimony. Because of the woman's testimony. Here it was quickly summarized. He told me all that I ever did. I I read to you verse 29. I'll read it again. A fuller version. Probably still a summary. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So what was her testimony? Her testimony was all about Jesus. Even if we were to expect that this is a summary, her testimony is not chiefly about herself, but about Christ. And the reason that I pause and say that now is because I think that there is a modern phenomenon in the church amongst Christians where it is not uncommon for believers today in sharing their testimony to share chiefly about oneself, where I've come from, what's happened in my life, how I got to a point of decision. Then I realized that now X, Y, and Z, all these things that have happened in my life and all that's gone down and all the good that has happened as a result. In fact, oftentimes we refer to a testimony as my story. I've heard it called that many times. Tell, tell your story, my story, right? Now, it's not hard to get a person to talk about themselves because it's the only thing you're really an expert on, most likely. No one knows your story more than you. And so when someone asks you questions about you, you know more about that subject than anything else you know about. If you're as most people... And your testimony, of course, then, will certainly be very personal. Of course it's a story about what's happened with you. Things that only you can tell. But you need to know that a testimony is not primarily about you, but about Jesus. In fact, the point of your testimony should not be to get people to be impressed by you, but for them to hear the truth about an impressive Christ. I want you to consider also, not only did she not try to make herself the hero of the story, which we're often so compelled to do. We're so compelled to make ourselves look out to be good. Not only did she not endeavor to do that, she did quite the contrary. In fact, in order for this woman to share this news with the town, 
She had to risk the possibility that more of her sin would be exposed. You ever think of that? Come, see a man who told me all I ever did. Oh, really, Ruth? Tell us all you ever did. What were the things he knew? Well, about um, just stuff. You know. She had to, she had to risk the possibility. Oh, I, I know. I, I bet I know what stuff he knew, right? She had to risk that by sharing this testimony. That's even the word used. She testifies here. A Christian testimony is necessarily humble. In fact, in some ways, it's more than just what we would say humble. It's humiliating. Because we must, in a testimony, acknowledge our sin. We must acknowledge how we've gotten ourselves into such a mess in the first place. So much of a mess, in fact, that we needed to be rescued. And that we couldn't have done it on our own. A Christian testimony is not, I realized the mess I had gotten in, and once I realized I solved the problem with my mind, and I did all the right things to get out of that mess. That's nothing Christian about that at all. The Christian testimony is summarized by, I once was lost, but then I was found. I was blind, but now I see because of what the deliverer did, what the rescuer did. I could not do it on my own. Nothing I could contribute even could aid in my rescue. I was entirely surrendered to another. And I want you to be surrendered to him too. That's a Christian testimony. It's it's inherently humble. It's not something we have accomplished, but something our Savior has accomplished. And the goal is not to make someone think better of you, but to invite a person to meet Jesus. As you notice, that's exactly what she did. Again, I'll just repeat verse 29, because that's the little longer version. Her testimony literally was an invitation to meet Christ. Come and see a man who told me all I ever did. That's her testimony. Come and see a man. It wasn't just, I hope you all are sitting down. I want to tell you a story. It wasn't even that. It was, come. What an awesome start to a testimony. It was literally an invitation. Continuing on, verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So they heard from her. Some of the people said, I want to find out more about this. And they listened to her invitation. They received her invitation. Come and see. Okay, let's go and see. And so they headed out, presumably to the well. That's where Jesus had been waiting. They asked for Jesus to come to them. In fact, they asked for him to stay or tarry with them. And Jesus obliged. And he didn't just stick around for another half an hour or delay till till nightfall. He stuck around two days. That's pretty significant. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel accounts and Jesus' ministry, you'll know then this is not a very typical reception. Jesus is often met by people with great hostility. In fact, even other Gentiles. I was reminded uh, that Jesus had a far more public miracle in another Gentile territory. 
Uh, he was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, Sea of the Jordan River. He's over there in the uh, Perea, the uh, area called the Gerizines. And while he's there, he comes upon two men who are filled with demons. You might remember that story? Crazed out of their mind. Like people would try to chain them up and bind them and imprison them because they were, they were wreaking havoc. And they would literally break the chains. They could not be subdued. He lived up in these caves. If anyone walked by, they'd, they'd risk being pounced upon and beaten furiously. This was a major public menace. And Jesus shows up, and with mere words, he removes and casts out these demons from these men. They're now sitting there in right mind, and the people in the town come out, just like the Samaritans came out to see Jesus. These people in the nearby town come out to see Jesus. I want to read to you what happened when they came out to see Jesus' miracle having been concluded. Matthew 8, 34. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus... And when they saw him, they begged him to leave the region. That's like one of those sentences you read twice. Like, wait, they what? He literally can cast out demons, heal, solve public nuisances in an instant, make that road safe for anyone to travel by. He can cure like that. And what's your first first impulse? Get away. That's crazy talk. But this is the way that oftentimes Jesus was received by people with hostility and angst and not with warmth. Stay longer. Be be with us. So this request from the Samaritans is significant. And I I don't know this to be sure, but this is the way I picture it. I think it'd be safe to assume they offered him lodging and food uh, for his his, uh, traveling companions, his disciples. I think that's very likely, especially in that day. You stay here. Well, my wife will cook for you. you we, have a, we can make up a bed over here in the guest room. You all have a place to stay. They wanted to hear more from this Jesus. And what happened as a result of him sticking around? Many more believed. Many. Shows up again. And many more believed because of his word. Because of his word. Think about that. Many more believed because of his word. Jesus has done miracles. He just did miracles in Jerusalem. He just finished up doing miracles in Jerusalem. And he's on his way back from Jerusalem. And so people have already seen him do some mighty works and signs. He's getting ready to go back into Galilee, where if we kept going, and next week we'll get there, he's going to be confronted with a crowd who just asked to see more miracles. And Jesus is a little frustrated by it. My goodness, it's all about the miracles. Are you hearing anything I'm saying? This generation seeks a sign. All you want is miracles. And when he does the most amazing miracles, they ask for more. They have an insatiable hunger for miracles. Do it again. Do it again. And he gets upset by it oftentimes. But here, we don't even see one miracle apart from he knows about this woman's life. That's the only thing we see supernaturally conveyed here. And why is it that they believe? Because of his word. This is the first mass turning to Jesus in this, in this entire gospel on the basis of his word alone. We saw people coming to him because of his signs in Jerusalem. We saw people uh, coming to him to get baptized by his disciples in the wilderness, acknowledging their sins. But this is the first that seems to be genuine belief in Christ because of his words. And it's a group of Samaritans, enemies of the Jews. That's very significant. 
And what do they say about him? It's no longer because of what you, the woman, said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know this is indeed the Savior of the world. Savior of the world. You know, that's the only place in all four Gospels where that language is used. That Jesus is the Savior of the world. It's referred to in some manner in other places, but to be called the Savior of the world, this is it. And it's proclaimed by these Samaritans. And this is why this is so significant. Because Jesus had already been told uh, uh, to be this Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One that was to come. The woman had already said, can this be the Christ? That's what she said in verse 29. And so if they were to indicate, hey, he really is the Christ. What if their version of Christ was wrong in their minds, as was true with so many Jews? So many Jews wanted a Messiah, a Christ. They wanted a literal son of David, a descendant of the, of the uh, royal line of David, to sit on a throne, vanquish the earthly enemies, establish a political rule all over again, reestablish the land of Israel, kick out all the, all the bad guys. That's what they wanted. Many people wanted and hoped Jesus was that Messiah. So if these Samaritans were only to call him the Messiah, you really are that guy. That would not be nearly as significant as them calling him the Savior of the world. And what that shows is they, they knew who he was. They got it. They really got it. He's not just the Savior of the Jews or the Savior of the Samaritans or even the Savior of all the children of Abraham, as they might have even considered themselves. He is the Savior of the world. Without using that exact phrase, Jesus said something similar in the chapter earlier. John 3, 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The world might be saved through Jesus. John, the evangelist, the one who wrote this down in this gospel, he will later, in one of his letters in 1 John, much after the events of this passage, John will write this in 1 John 4, 14. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. I think the first time that John ever heard those words were from the mouths of these Samaritans when he was present to hear that said. And now he, with these Samaritans, testifies. This Jesus, the Son of the Father, is the Savior of the world. Jesus came to save people from every nation. There is not one region on this planet where we ought not expect a harvest. And I want you to notice, before we move on, this was a result of Jesus' words, not his works. They saw not miracles, but they heard words. And don't be surprised by that. Christ's word has great power. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So where did Jesus grow up? Nazareth. If you remember the Christmas story, he was born in Bethlehem. But that's just because his parents were on a trip. They were, they were doing a census. They had to go back to the town of their ancestry. They'd flee to Egypt to try to get away from Herod, who's hunting this king of the Jews. But Jesus would eventually be raised in the town of Nazareth under his father's tutelage as a carpenter. 
But Jesus does not go from Jerusalem back to Nazareth. Why does he not go back to his hometown? Well, it says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Something like this is said, almost this exact same language is used in all four gospel accounts. That Jesus avoided ministry in Nazareth largely for this reason. The fruitlessness of the ministry in Nazareth owing to the fact that they rejected him outright. In fact, there was apparently even a bit of a well-known proverb or saying floating around in that day. It's quoted in one of the other Gospels. Now, listen carefully here. This, I want to make a quick application point and, and give you my disclaimer. This is not a universal application, and I don't think it's the purpose of this text. But that truism being said four different times in the Gospels, and again right here, we see it, Jesus saying it, I think ought to give us some level of encouragement. Sometimes God sends missionaries from far outside of a given mission field and makes them particularly fruitful in a place that is entirely foreign to them. In other words, it is not always the locals that have the greatest success success in missions and evangelism. This is owing in part to this truism In fact, I think about this just personally. This always jumps off the page to me because when my wife and I were feeling the strong calling to move to Utah and plant the mission church and do evangelism and missions out here in this landscape, so many times back then and still to this very day, we have people ask, why Utah? Do you have family in Utah? No. Did you have friends in Utah? No. Did you have ministry partners in Utah? No. Did you have... Some connections to Mormonism, the dominant faith in Utah. No. The answer was, we had no business being here. Other than God opened our hearts, put in Utah, and closed it. And I can't describe it in any other way than such a clear call that to deny it would be like Jonah fleeing, and I was afraid I'd end up in the belly of a fish. I remember that people came on a few occasions, not many, but there were a few that were notable to me where people would ask, well, so you didn't grow up LDS, you didn't grow up around these mountains, you didn't, well then, why would you come out here? Why wouldn't, wouldn't it be way better for locals to be raised up and them to plant churches? And for the record, that's wonderful when that happens, but we had some discourage us. What do you have to offer? You know nothing about this place. And we took comfort in this principle that it is oftentimes the greatest Jew that's ever lived, Paul, (laughs) the Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews, who sent to the uncircumcised ones, the Gentiles. What business to you? The rabbi going to teach the Gentiles, and God just does it this way sometimes. If you have a strong heart for a people, for a region, a nation, a language, people that come to your mind when you think of missions and evangelism and lost people's coming to saving faith, if you have that in you, and the Lord has just inspired that in your heart for whatever reason, don't let any unfamiliarity with that place deter you from engaging in prayer and ministry and maybe going to missions in that kind of place. Because so often God takes a person from here, moves them to there, and flourishes their ministry. Jesus, 
doesn't go to Nazareth, but he goes to Galilee. And what did they do? They welcomed him. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. So a little comparison here. They didn't hear Jesus' words as especially significant. At least that's not what's stated. Maybe they did hear. But what was surprising and inspiring to them was the signs that they observed. I want to read for you John 2, 23. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Among those would have been these Galileans, because it says right here in John chapter 4, they too had gone to the feast. If you're not familiar with the Jewish religion at this time and hadn't been with us through much of this, the Jews occasionally would have to travel back to Jerusalem in pilgrimages for big sacrifices and feast days, and Passover was one of the most significant ones of the year. And so it was not at all uncommon for people to make a pilgrimage from their hometown, wherever far away it was, through the roads to Jerusalem to be present and then come back to their homes after. And that's exactly what happened here. The Galileans had made their way back to Galilee before Jesus arrived, perhaps because he stayed for a couple of days in Samaria. Nevertheless, his reputation has preceded him. Before he gets to Galilee, word about him has arrived, and it's mostly a positive word. Now, we're going to unpack a bit more about what Jesus' dealings are in Galilee next week. But I just want to pause and use the remaining amount of time that we have to point out to you five individuals or groups of people that are being referred to in these last couple of paragraphs of this section, the ones we discovered. Five people or groups of people that I want you to consider, make observations about them with me here, and my hope is that by so doing, this would be an encouragement to your gospel witness. And the first is apart from Jesus, the most principal player in this story. The first person we see here is the woman at the well. I want you to consider two things about this woman. We've talk, talked about her at length in previous weeks, but today I want you to notice two things about what takes place at this time. First, this woman was just moving along through life. She's minding her own business when seemingly out of nowhere... She had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. She did not wake up that morning thinking, today will be the day I meet the Savior of the world. She had no idea that that's what was about to happen, that her life and eternity were about to change. Jesus came to her. He sought her out. He set a spiritual ambush. He interrupted her busy schedule of errand running and saved her immortal soul. Sometimes that's the way it works. Sometimes, seemingly out of nowhere, someone comes to saving faith in Jesus. And when I, when I say seemingly out of nowhere, in the mind of God, of, to be sure it is not so, but there are certain times when you find out about a friend or relative that all of a sudden comes to faith in Christ, and you're like, wait, what? You? You're not even on my prayer list. I, 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 didn't, no, no offense, I don't even think about you. 
Sometimes the Lord just shows up. He sets out, he pursues, he pounces, and he always wins. I was thinking about St. Augustine, a famous Christian in history. Some of his writings have been archived and been a great service to people for many years. In his famous work, Confessions, Augustine describes a crucial moment in his conversion story. See, he had been committed to a hedonistic lifestyle, pursuing all of his own desires, his own fleshly sins at full speed, even when he had heard some gospel and he'd begin hearing the words of another a Christian in the area named Ambrose. He's hearing these things and he's thought about them, but he's not willing to give up his life. He's just, he's heard about those things, but he's going about his business. He was sitting in a garden in Milan, Italy, deeply troubled, wrestling with his inner struggles. And he heard a child's voice chanting, take up and read, take up and read. Augustine never knew where that voice came from. He just assumed it was a kid playing on the other side of the wall. But he took it as a divine sign to go to the scriptures and he opened up the Bible to Romans chapter 13 and this is what he read. Verses 13 and 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And those verses spoke directly to his heart right where he was. Right in his exact heart struggle, fleshly issues. And he felt a profound spiritual awakening. And he would say that that was the point at which the Holy Spirit converted his soul. And I get teary-eyed for a couple of reasons. First, what in the world does that verse have to do with salvation? How, is that the one you go to when you have an evangelistic encounter with a friend? Aha, aha, here's the one. The Spirit knew. For me, Psalm 34, 18. And my moment of greatest, greatest breaking, my lowest point in life, I did one of those popcorn kind of just stick your finger in random and landed on Psalm 34, 18. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying God uses even those seemingly random moments the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. I would not be surprised if many of you had a verse that just was really significant at just the right moment. That perhaps at any other moment would just kind of be insignificant. Not worth remembering. Sometimes Jesus sets the ambush. My hope is he's done that for you today. If you're not a believer, I hope that he set an ambush for you and you may not even be thinking very deeply about spiritual things and he just, wham, out of nowhere. It's going to save your soul. And you're going to see him for who he is and never want to look away. And his promise is you won't have to. You can gaze on me forever. See, because in spite of your sin... Christ went to the cross to die for those very sins and the wrath of God that's due to you for them. 
And all you need to do is turn to him in faith. You need to believe on him. Repent of sins, turn in faith to Christ, and you can have eternal life. And your eternity changes in an instant, just a moment. And it might not even feel to you like a long, trudging walk uphill and a battle through doctrine and theology and these things you're wrestling with. It just might be a moment. You weren't even ready for it that day. And the Lord saves. That's my hope for you today if you're not a believer. Everything changes for you when you believe on him and have eternal life. For the believer, here's my encouragement to you. You probably know people like this. You probably know people, they might not even be in your mind right now because they're not in the front of your mind when you're thinking about those that Christ is just ready to save. Those who don't necessarily seem particularly soft-hearted or hard-hearted. As this with this woman, I don't think we necessarily see that. Not those who we would say have been on a spiritual journey for years. Eh, they don't seem to take it very seriously. They're certainly not seeking God in any way that you could observe. They may even be entrenched in some kind of sin, and your thought is, they're probably going to have to lose their taste for that, and something's going to have to happen before they come to faith in Christ. So what do you do? You just pray that Jesus would pursue them and meet them where they are. That's exactly what you should do. Just pray. Just pray, God, you show up, do something. Maybe it's a distant family member, a relative, a friend who you're stay in contact with on Facebook, but they live, they live thousands of miles away, and your hope is hopefully some person talks to them about the gospel. Sometimes that's the way the Lord does it. I want you also to consider what happens once you say, consider her gospel witness. By the end of this story, many, many, say that twice, many, many, because the, the, the verses say it twice, many, many Samaritans will believe. They become Christians. Many hear her testimony, and bam, they're saved. And then another many hear her testimony. It's enough to get up and go, and they find Jesus, and then they're saved. Many, many. And who would have thought that if Jesus had set his heart to reach this whole town's worth of people, that he would choose to use this woman to do it? She was an unlikely witness, an unexpected first chosen herald of the gospel amongst her neighbors. But Jesus never makes mistakes. He plans this perfectly. I want to read to you one commentator, J.C. Ryle, what he said about this woman. The word of one weak woman was made the instrumental means of belief to many souls. There was nothing remarkable in the woman's words. It contained no elaborate reasoning and no striking eloquence. It was only a hearty, earnest testimony of a believing heart. Yet God was pleased to use it to the conversion of souls. We must never despise the use of means. The strength, the effectiveness of this woman's testimony was not in who she was, nor in how well she communicated to others, So be encouraged as a witness for Christ. You may not have the greatest influence amongst your circle of friends. You may not have the best reputation amongst your circle of friends. You may not feel adequately equipped to articulate all of the particulars of the gospel. But Jesus has been using people like that to reach villages full of people since the very beginning. 
Just imagine the spiritual family tree that may have sprouted from this one sinful woman's moment in time. Think of how many millions of believers there might be in heaven someday that could trace their heritage back hundreds and thousands of years to this one moment where this woman meets Jesus, runs into the town and said, come see a man. And then be encouraged to do the same. I want you to notice this woman. Second person I want you to see is a group, a group of villagers. Notice those who believed simply by hearing the woman's testimony. That's the first group we see. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. We could call these people early adopters. Before seeing or hearing Jesus, they believed on her word alone. And sometimes this is just how people get saved. John 17, 20, Jesus is praying for his disciples in his high priestly prayer. But he makes it clear he's not only praying for the 12, or at that time the 11 disciples who will faithfully follow through with his ministry. He says this to make it clear he's, he's praying for more than God's blessing on these alone. He says this, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know that faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. These people were low-hanging fruit. I mean, how low-hanging must they be? Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Boom, salvation. That's like when you lean on a tree and fruit just falls. That's ripe. And what was it about their personalities or their experiences that made them so ready to hear her testimony? Nothing. It wasn't about them. It wasn't about her. Simply, the Spirit of God was at work, and they were ready for harvest. This is what we want to experience when we share the gospel, isn't it? I don't believe it's typical. Last week, I spent a decent amount of time telling you some of the history of missions in Utah and just the hard ground that it has been to plant churches and to sow seeds of gospel witness here. And we're praying that the Lord will come along and send His Spirit for a great revival and huge harvest for us all to enjoy together and add to the number of saints in heaven for all eternity. We pray for this, but we know that it's not typical. The Bible makes nowhere a promise that when we go out into the world, we'll have that kind of heavy fruit falling out of the trees type of harvest. We may be the sowers and not the reapers. Spent much of our time last week looking at that. So what should we do? Indiscriminately share the good news with people. You might just be surprised by what God does with that simple act of obedience. Perhaps that harvest is more ready than you thought. The second group of villagers, they hear this woman's testimony. And while they did not immediately believe, something she said piqued their curiosity enough that they sought out Jesus. They wanted to see for themselves. This happens all over, the t- all over the place in the New Testament. We see Paul on his missionary journeys, and he's sharing the gospel. And some believe, and others don't. And sometimes people just pause and go, we want to hear from you again. Can you, can you come back again? I'd like to, like to hear more about this. We even see dignitaries and magistrates wanting to hear Paul share again and again because they have so many questions and thoughts. Sometimes people initially respond to a gospel witness with a what we might call a willing skepticism. Not belief, but perhaps open-mindedness. And the fact that they did not at once believe 
does not necessarily indicate a hardened heart. If you're an unbeliever here today or will hear this, if this is you, welcome. Seek, seek out truth. I always want to say this to people to hear this. We love, as believers, especially here at the Mission Church, this is a big deal for us, we love answering any question you can throw. Not because we know all the answers, but because we're entirely unafraid and unashamed of the answers and the questions. There is not one category of life that you could ask about that we go, oh, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't talk about that here. Not one. We'll open the word and go, well, let's look. Let's see. That's the way we want to walk through life. That's the way we want to be. If you're not a believer today, we want you to know, ask, just seek. We love investigating and helping you along in that particular journey. Of course, you have questions about Jesus, about faith, about the Bible, good and evil and right and wrong and eternity and God and Satan and angels and demons. All of this you do. Don't keep those quiet. Ask those questions. It's why we're here. We want to be a part of that. You're always going to have questions, but even more important than seeking out answers, you need to seek out Jesus. You need to seek Jesus. Now, these guys had the benefit of getting both at once. They got to go to Jesus and get answers at the same time. Salvation, though, is not in all of the answers to your deepest questions. Salvation is in the name of Jesus alone. What you need most is not answers. You need a Savior. And as any believer in your life can attest, we have tons of questions. I expect for, for an infinite number of years we could come up with questions for our God. What we need most as a savior, and we have that in Jesus. So brothers and sisters, be very patient with people who want to see for themselves. We could get haughty if we're not careful. I gave a really good answer. They won't accept it. Stop, 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 stop. That might not be a hardened heart yet. Might not. Just wait. Just be patient. You and I can't bring people to Jesus in the same way that this woman did. Jesus is not sitting at a coffee shop around the corner physically. Hey, I'll introduce this guy. Physically shake hands. You know that. We know that. In fact, since this has been recorded, no one has been able to do that. But we can bring Jesus to them. It's not as though we have no hope. We have something this woman didn't have. First and foremost, we can say the Holy Spirit. It seems that that's something that's going to take place at the day of Pentecost. She'll be filled with the Holy Spirit in a different way then. But what, that's not what I'm saying. We have, we have something, a benefit, that she didn't have. And I'm holding it in my hand right now. We have the actual words of Christ written to point to. When you do the equivalent of what she did there, come and see Jesus. We don't say, come and hear the things I have to say about him. Come and hear my testimony, the story about me. We say, come to, and we can point right to the word of God. This is what we use. This is, look at what Jesus said. Look at what his word proclaims. That's what we do. There is power in the word of Christ. That's what we are to do. We can invite people to meet Jesus through his word. The next group of people was the Nazarenes. These were the hard-hearted people. It doesn't say Nazarene in the text. We just know it was his hometown. He didn't go to his hometown, Nazareth, because a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. That means the people had already heard from Jesus. They'd already met him. 
They already interacted with him, some of them maybe for years, and they were hardened to who he was. They were hard-hearted people. You know this. If you've been a believer for any length of time, you know this. Some people have heard about Jesus long before you ever enter into their lives. And they've already come to a conclusion about what they think about him. And if, you, if, they, if that person is anything like the people of Nazareth, they refuse to accept Jesus as the Savior of the world. In fact, they may even have what they consider good reasons to reject him. They may be willing to accept him as a carpenter, the son of their own town, perhaps even a wise teacher, a mere spiritual brother, but a savior of the world in the way that they meant here? No. And so we can take comfort in this. Even in Jesus' day, there were people like this. They've already made up their mind about Jesus. So what can you do about it? Well, in your own power, nothing. And you can have peace about that. Jesus once instructed his disciples on how to deal with people like this. Stop. John, Matthew 10, 14, he says this. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, tell them again and again. And again. No, 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 it doesn't say that actually. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. What's he meaning? The act of shaking off the dust from their feet symbolized that the messengers had fulfilled their duty and were moving forward without carrying any resentment or responsibility for the rejection. In a peace of heart, God, I, I shared, I, I told them the truth. They didn't want it. I told them who you were. I invited them to come meet you. And you can move on with peace in the heart. There may be people in your life that fall into this category. Certainly there will be. But some of them might be in your daily life. They may be those in proximity to you. Those you're going to have to be in interactions with often. Hard-hearted people, co-workers, neighbors, maybe even family in your home or extended family, and you're going to have to see them every Thanksgiving, every Christmas, every birthday, every fill-in-the-blank. How are you going to deal with it? I've known lots of brothers and sisters who have just felt just, if, if something about an interaction, they wanted to share the gospel, and they get together with somebody, they're like, okay, here you go again. Time, 14th time's a charm. Let's do this with Uncle Willie. Let's do it. And they walk up, and Uncle Willie, before you even start talking, shuts down, I don't want to talk anything about your Jesus. I'm done. Don't, don't bring that up with me, otherwise I'm going to walk on the other way. And I, I'm confident many of you have had these types of experiences, and I've known many brothers and sisters who felt so brokenhearted, and like a failure. Ah! <sighs> Man, I missed, a, I, I missed another chance to share the gospel with them. Let me, let me try to encourage you with Christ's encouragement here. Perhaps it is more faithful for you to not be relentless. Sometimes you must exercise your faith by trusting that God knows how best to deal with the hardest-hearted people in your lives. And perhaps, and you're going to have to be okay with this, it's not going to be through you. Would you be okay with that? I want to give you a piece here because I've known so many who just wrestled all their life in their heart. Listen, wrestle in your heart over the lost people that are in your life. But don't bear on your shoulders the weight of their salvation. That is for Christ alone. Relenting on sharing the gospel with a hard-hearted person is not the same thing as writing them off. Maybe you just need to adjust your tactics, pray more. God, this kind comes out by prayer, right? <laughs> the the demon that's cast out, and Jesus says, you're not going to do this, disciples. You just need to get, I'll come and take care of that. 
Maybe you need to accept that it might not be your words that will bring someone to a Christ. You know, I couldn't help but think of Acts chapter 9. I thought hard-hearted people. Who was a harder heart than Saul before he became the Apostle Paul? He was an expert in the gospel. He knew the gospel. He'd talked to Christians. He'd interviewed Christians. He'd sat there to hear the entire gospel proclaimed by Stephen and probably many more as he went about from house and house to bring people into chains and eventually death. He called himself a murderer. And who was it who finally broke through? What evangelist finally softened his heart? And ah, Jesus himself knocked him to the ground on the road to Damascus, blinded him, and then sent him to the house of a man named Ananias. And you remember what Ananias, that Christian man, said when he hears from the Spirit of God, hey, you're going to have to go to this man named Saul. He goes, oh, no, he's off our list, God. He's on the Dunzo list. We've already tried. Shaking dust off our feet, no more. We've written him off. No, God says, no one's written off for me. They had stopped evangelizing and sharing the gospel with Paul a long time before, but God wasn't done with him. And if God could do that with a man like Paul, how much more could he do that with anyone that you or I could know? There will be hard-hearted people just like those of Nazareth. And finally, the Galileans. We'll see much more about them in upcoming, uh, this upcoming week in the next part of the story. But we know about the Galileans here. They were eyewitnesses of his work. They were eyewitnesses of it. Those who saw Jesus perform miracles, and that became the basis for their belief. They didn't hear the testimony from another person. It wasn't just the words uh, that they spoke, that they heard from him when they got to him. He showed up and did something miraculous, and they believed. They believed in his name. Sometimes people you and I know are calling out for help. They have a big problem in front of them and they're asking God to help them. Do you know non-believers like this in your life? They're just not, they're just, they're just, they don't have a God to believe in. They're without hope, like Ephesians tells us about those who don't have a God. And so what do they do? They just weep and toil and they get anxious over the losses in their lives and the sick person they don't know what to do with in their life and the, the job that they're hoping to get they don't know what to do with. They just struggle. What if you as a believer stepped in and offered just to pray for the prayer request list that your non-believing friend might have? What if we prayed for the things that our neighbor, our non-believing neighbor had heavy on his or her heart? I want you to imagine for a second your next-door neighbor is aching for a job, and they're just hoping. Well, hope in what? Hope. Well, we don't just hope in hope. We hope in a living hope who is Christ. I will pray to him for you. What if then God does choose to answer that prayer? That person won't just be going, ah, the universe gave me a gift. The person might remember, wait, that Christian said they would go to their God and appeal on my behalf for this thing. Perhaps that person could become in some way an eyewitness of the works of God that would lead to salvation. Wouldn't that be awesome? Brothers, sisters, if you have people in your life like this, pray for their salvation, but perhaps also add to your list the needs that they have as well, that God would show up and in some kind of equivalence to what Jesus did in Jerusalem, that he would do a mighty work in their lives, they would see it take place and that that would lead them to salvation. My goal and hope as we read through this and see these five peoples is that we would be stirred up and encouraged in our gospel witness. It can be so simple. 
and it can matter so much. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these stories in the Bible that are just filled with weeks and weeks and weeks. We can go through the story of the woman at the well and continue to mine out more and more and more that can be a help for us. But Lord, none of it will be great unless it's applied in our lives. And my goal and hope is that not just that it would be new thoughts to to tickle the mind, not just uh, good feelings that fill the heart in the moment while we're all here together in our time of worship, but that, Lord, we remember these things and walk away and apply them and we get to experience the great fruit of whatever role you have for us to play. Lord, we're part of the winning team and we get to be in the game. Thank you that we get to play whatever role it is, whether it seems to us insignificant or not. The task is extraordinary. And we thank you for that mighty gift. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.